frameworks, frameworks everywhere, and yet we still have people complaining they can't work out what to build next. My guest tonight says he has the answer, or at least an answer. But before we get to that answer, a brief aside to mention that this episode is sponsored by Skip Level, who are going to help you answer an important question. Do you struggle with communicating with dev teams, understanding technical terminology and concepts? A while back on episode 98 of this podcast, I hosted Irene Yu, the founder of Skip Level. Skip Level is an on-demand training program that helps professionals and teams become more technical in just five weeks, all without learning how to code. You can learn the knowledge and skills you need to better communicate with devs and become more confident in your day-to-day role with the Skip Level program. So you can head over to onenightinproduct.com slash skiplevel and use referral code OKIP to support this podcast. You can check the show notes for more details. All right, back to the episode and an interview where I speak to someone who's tasted the fruits of success at some of the biggest tech companies around, but walked away realising he still had a lot to learn about how to apply their best practices to the rest of the product world. He's got a lot to say about evidence-based idea prioritisation and making sure you really focus on goals rather than features. So without further ado, let's get going on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Itamar Gilad. Itamar's a product management coach, speaker and author who says he hates hype, so I'm going to preemptively commit to not hyping this interview in advance. Sorry, Itamar. Itamar's passionate about the principles and mind models that drive product management and once had a job as a language editor for a local newspaper, but he's now trying to help translate the Rosetta Stone of product management through his consulting and speaking and trying to get us all to embrace evidence-guided development and supercharging human judgment with the GIST framework. Or maybe it's GIST, you know, like a GIF. Hi, Itamar. How are you tonight? Very good. Thank you for inviting me. No problem. It's good to have you here, and I'm looking forward to... Well, actually, that's a good first question. Is it GIF or GIF in your world? Which way would you go? I pronounce it GIST. I didn't even actually realize that there were two pronunciations, and they're both correct until I, I, I started using the word. Well, there you go. So it's GIST, not GIST. It's okay. It's important to get these things right. We don't want to get into a holy war, is the most important thing. All right. So first things first, you are a product coach at Product Front, which I believe is your own consultancy. So what sort of work are you getting involved in day to day with Product Front and who are you doing it for? So I do a few things. I train product teams and product leaders. I teach them strategy and mostly I teach them what I call evidence guided product development, which is, I guess, the stuff we're going to talk about soon. Oh, yeah. I also coach like yourself. And I also try to write. I try to devote a lot of time to writing, so I have a newsletter. And I'm also working on a book. This is like a four-year project now. Oh, I'll take, well, not that hard as four years, I guess, but how's that book coming along then? It's, uh, you know, it ebbs and flows. But recently, <laughs> it picked up a bit, a bit again, so I'm hopeful that I'm starting to see uh, an end to it. But it will be a few months in the making still, at least. Well, that's something to look forward to as we get towards the winter time again, I guess. But what type of companies then are you working for? Is it primarily with startups or have you got like an enterprise play as well? Or is it like a big mix? Like where's your sweet spot? It kind of varies. Uh, I think mostly it's scale-ups and larger companies, but I do do the old uh, startup and I enjoy working with startupists a lot, as you probably know. It's it's a lot more fun. <laughs> They're super interested to learn. They're, it's easy for them to pivot and change things. Mostly I work with product organizations that already exist. I mean, companies that do have a product organization. They're not just like, you know, a ma- massive scrum, safe house that just want to start <laughs> understanding what product is. 
So a product organization that exists, but they want to kind of up-level the game. They want to move a little bit more in the direction of lean, agile, product discovery, using evidence correctly. You probably are familiar with uh, the scenario. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting, actually, that talk about the early startups as well, because one thing that I've heard consistently from a bunch of people that I've spoken to is that early startups quite often need a lot of this stuff, but they're not necessarily in a position to pay for it yet. So as you start to go up through the scale up and into the larger companies, that's when they're actually prepared to commit money to it. But I guess it's interesting, though, because if you're talking about the medium, the small to medium companies, you've obviously got a lot to say there with the and maybe a lot more impact that you can make in theory because you've got this company that's maybe not quite so set in its ways. It's not got the big structures and the big processes, but you're also talking to big companies. So do you feel that the techniques that you're using do really translate to those bigger sort of, let's call them enterprises, or is that more of an incremental change that you can make to those organizations? So I have the benefit of working in all of those. I worked in some startups, I worked in scale-ups, and I worked in a couple of big enterprises Microsoft, Google, uh, even IBM in my early days. And a lot of what I teach is based on large company issues. And I find there's some set of universal problems that exist across the board. And that's kind of what, that's, I think, what we're all trying to do. We're trying to find frameworks that are kind of applicable across the board, but then we help clients kind of adapt them to their situation. So definitely, if I teach GIST, to a startup, I would tell them to tone it down, reduce the amount of process by like 90%. And it's <laughs> super lightweight. Well, if I work with uh, an enterprise, especially a more traditional company, we will have to work through it much, much slowly. There are a lot of more participants involved. There's a lot of more existing process to integrate with. So very different uh, stories. But still, the, I think the frameworks, the principles, apply across the board. Well, that's a good story, a motivational story for companies large and small. But you just talked about how you were at Google and obviously Google are one of the big tech titans. And actually, I think you'd spent a couple of years coaching after, I think after you'd worked in a couple of other companies, you then took a couple of years to do some coaching back in like 2008. And in 2010, you went on to Google and kind of gave up the coaching for a bit, which you've obviously returned to. But was that a case of like, coaching wasn't for you at the time or was it just that google was such a fantastic opportunity and something that you just really wanted to get into yeah a bit of both and to be honest i, I didn't make it very well in coaching at the time <laughs> partly because i didn't know that that much i mean when you teach you need to i think also have a good basis of knowledge and but at that time i wasn't i didn't have that much to teach honestly <laughs> uh, and then google came along and that sounded like a great opportunity but always at the back of my mind, as I was working as a product manager, I was always interested in what else is there out there. And, you know, we're, we're all talking about the creator economy now. It's a big hype. Yep. So I was always interested in other types of projects. And eventually, after 20 years of uh, doing engineering and product, I felt it's time to, to make the switch after I've done Google. And here I am. Well, I was going to say, because you worked as a product or rather program manager at Microsoft back in the day, a bit before that, obviously, then you worked in some startups, you then went to Google, which is obviously a really huge kind of exemplar company in some ways, like lots of people look at the practices of the big tech companies, and maybe even Microsoft these days and try to emulate those. But I think it's fair to say that Microsoft and Google have traditionally had very different cultures. 
And there's also been a bit of a kind of a pushback in some circles against some of the maybe the excesses of Google culture as well, because, yeah, they've got so much money, they can just about do anything. And they give such amazing perks and lots of, yeah, as with Twitter, as with some of the other big tech firms that there's kind of almost like these are just luxury roles to some extent, which I don't 100% buy, but there is some of that kind of pushback out there. Would you say that your coaching that you do these days is much more informed by your time at Google, or is it really an amalgamation of all of the time that you spent across all these different companies? After I, l- I left Google, or when I was leaving Google, I felt I had it all figured out. I mean, I worked at Google, <laughs> I worked on a billion uh, user product, uh, I was there at Gmail, and before that on YouTube, so I knew everything. <laughs> and the first few years of coaching were actually such a gr- great school for me. That's where I worked with startups. That's where I started trying out things that worked for me in Google. And I realized I need to adapt them. And I also adopted a lot of things we didn't use at Google. I mean, Google is not like, it's a great company to work for, but I actually wrote an article about this. Big tech is not an exemplar of how things have to be done. Like they didn't figure out the templates for success. They figured out <laughs> something that works for them yeah. specifically. And it's very different if you go to Netflix or to Amazon or to Google, each one of these companies is very different. So when people look at this company and say, hi, I want to work like, the, like big tech, pick one. And then I'll show <laughs> you why, why most of the things they do may not apply to you. Yeah. What I do recommend for people to do, and that's what I try to teach, is copy the principles. I mean, these companies invest in people, empower teams, really value the customers. Everything they do is about the customer. Experiment. Are willing to change their opinion. Like senior people are willing to change their opinion given data. These are the sort of things you want to do in your company, honestly. The process itself, how you do it, it could be, you know, working backwards like Amazon, or it could be leading with context like Netflix, or it could be the Google way. That doesn't matter. Uh, Probably you will create your own process anyway. So adopt the principles, understand the frameworks, and then follow up with the... And people tend to do it the opposite. They they read the book (laughs) and say, all right. You know what we need? We need uh, the six-page, you know, uh, press release, frequently asked question process of Amazon. That's in fashion now. Yeah. It's called working backwards, right? No, you don't need this specifically. You need to understand the the context behind it, the reasoning, and then ask yourself, how does this apply to me? Yeah, it's funny. I was doing a talk with a company this morning, and they were asking about OKRs and whether OKRs are still good or whether they're out of fashion or something like that. And I think my answer was probably very similar to to what you said in a way. It's like people that start with OKRs and just try and just replace what they had and not change any of the ways that they work, but just change all their KPIs to OKRs or just all their tasks that they need to do into OKRs, kind of missing the point. And the, the whole point of OKRs isn't that you've got this cool template to put stuff in, but it's the way that you get to them and they kind of miss all that stuff out. So completely agree with the concept of like, you know, try and work out what they're really doing rather than what they've ended up or the the expression of how they've done it. But do you think that some of the criticism of the big tech companies when it's kind of like everyone's kind of overprivileged and pampered and yeah, there's all this talk about, say, for example, with Twitter, like how they're all kind of lazing around. Again, I don't buy that. But do you think there's anything to, I mean, you, again, you, you touched on it in that article about like they've basically got infinite money, most of these companies or pretty much infinite money, and they can kind of maybe take risks or carry weight that other companies can't. Like, do you think there's anything to that? 
Absolutely. I mean, there's an awful lot of waste inside these companies. And I'm not talking about just perks and stuff. That's that's company culture. And if it works for them, that's fine. Yeah. I do think that because they have such deep pockets, they are in a position to create a lot of projects that will fail. Yeah. And to invest a lot in these projects and then kill them eventually. After a few years, we tried it, didn't work out. Let's move on. Sometimes it it kind of hits them back like I was in Google during Google Plus. <laughs> so sometimes when you do a really big strategy, build a really big strategy around some of these ideas, you are you are paying a very high cost. But in general, that's one way they're doing it. And I think a lot of big tech companies are actually now paying attention. And I'm saying this because I'm getting a lot of traction with people from Google and from other companies. They're very interested in better ways of working and kind of figuring out what will work before you build, uh, I don't know, a hundred person project around it and work for a year and a half. How can we actually find evidence earlier? How can we actually test things? How can we pivot? So they are just as interested in build, measure, learn, and discovery as a lot of those other companies that we're consulting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, hopefully you can continue to steer the ship from your new position outside of the company. But talking about that new position and the coaching and the way that you're trying to help people and teams today, talking at conferences, fighting a good fight, trying to spread the word. One of the things you talk about is prioritization and your use of the ICE framework, which is impact, confidence, and effort. But before we talk about the framework, you've got an interesting little twist, or I think it's your little twist anyway, which is the confidence meter, which is a lovely little dial that goes from like 0.01 all the way up to 10 to kind of represent the confidence you have of an idea. And 0.01 is self-conviction, so just some idea that you've had and you've got no idea at all outside of your own head, all the way up to 10, which is like you've actually launched it and you've got some real-world data from it. Now, how did you come up with that? And I guess also, how has it helped you in your work? All right, good point. So the motivation, I think, is obvious. Anyone who has worked in tech has seen that overconfident product manager, overconfident executive comes in and say, we must build this. Never happens. Yeah. And why, <laughs> why must we? Because it's the trend in the industry now. Because I think it's a great idea and I'm a very smart person. Because us, <laughs> us as a committee of smart people, we sat together and concluded it's a great idea because the leading competitor has one of those. And those are all forms of evidence. I mean, I, I, I don't discount them. The question is, what is the weight compared to if we tested this with a customer? If we ran, I don't know, a fake door test and no one actually, or very few people actually clicked on the thing that says, let me know when this is ready. If we conducted 20 interviews and no one actually is super excited, what does that mean? compared to our opinions and the opinions of, you know, the industry. So it's not that we are saying, don't listen to managers, don't listen to the team, don't listen to opinions. We're saying, give those things a little bit less weight. And when I say a little bit, I, I'm actually think, saying a lot. I'm, for me, the scale is exponential. Yeah, yeah, the, exactly. The more you test, I mean, in my scale, if you look at it, at the very top of the confidence meter is like A-B experimentation. This is a really hard test to succeed in. So that, for me, is about a thousand times more important or has more weight than one person's opinion. Yeah. That person might be an expert. Maybe their opinion weighs a little bit heavier, but the A-B experiment is actually a much more, much more of an acid test. 
to test the idea. So that's kind of the the inception story. It took me a few iterations to come up with this exact model. I tried, I had an, another article before that where I tried to create a confidence score. So through trial and error, and then I published it and no one actually found it interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't very famous back then. Well, I didn't have a lot of followers. I'm not very famous <laughs> now, but... Ah, you're, you're famous to me, Ismail. Come on. All right, thank you. Uh, you're famous too. I mean, I, I see you. <laughs> you feature a lot on my uh, LinkedIn and, and, uh, and mm, Twitter. Sorry about that. So anyway, uh, and then later on, when I came up with GIST, people discovered that article and uh, that became my most read article about the confidence meter and how do you combine it with ICE to create uh, evidence-guided uh, prioritization. So is that something that you used whilst you were still kind of working day-to-day within companies or was that something that you came up with as part of your coaching and have then helped teams to, to use it since you did that? So I think I already started using the concept of confidence without actually putting numbers on it, just as a sense when I was working at Google. We had one particular feature that took a long time and had a lot of ups and downs. We had to iterate a lot on it. But eventually when it launched, it was pretty impactful and we were pretty happy with the results. And throughout this this project, initially I just came with an idea. I was the one with the self-conviction. And everyone in the company were like, you know what? Not such a great idea. We tried similar things. (laughs) Why are you so sure that this is a good idea? And I was the product manager. This was in Gmail. And I said, um, I don't know. And then the, my team was willing to help. So we did data analysis of how users behave, and we found supporting evidence. We did interviews, and we found supporting evidence. Then we came to management, and we say, hey, here's some supporting evidence. Give us some funding for this project. So they say, okay, looks interesting. Continue. Here's a little bit more headcount. And then we started doing usability tests and building it and iterating. And I realized that what was happening there is that I was forced, because of the skepticism and the wisdom of my teammates and my manager, I was forced to present evidence. And the evidence actually boosted my confidence in the idea and everyone's confidence in the idea to the point where at some point my manager said, you're not thinking big enough. This feature needs to launch across all the Gmail apps, this should be one of our biggest launches ever. Make it a big deal. And I was able to convince the Android team at the time who was controlling the Gmail team with evidence again that this is a really cool idea to work on. And so on. So the, the idea, by the way, if you're interested, is the tabbed inbox. It's kind of, maybe you guys don't love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I turn it off most of the time, but I, I'm sure some people love it. Yeah, it's a feature, if you don't know it, it's kind of categorizes your email to social promotions and primary, which is the stuff you're usually interested in. The, the few yep. uh, other uh, categories that are, you can turn them on. And it's designed for kind of uh, more passive Gmail users. Not people like yourself who probably know how to filter messages very effectively. Not people who want to touch every message and yep. be zero, inbox zero practitioners, regular people. And for them, this was a very important feature, yeah. at least based on our data. So anyway, this long process kind of taught me to be a little bit more humble and to rely much more on evidence. And later on, it was a matter of codifying this into a framework that is usable across projects, essentially. 
Yeah, and one thing I like about the confidence meter is the way it tries to put a name or even like a story to the confidence scale because one criticism that you see about numeric prioritization frameworks like ICE or RICE or all the other ones that you can add up and use to try to do some kind of prioritization on a, a list of stuff is that you're putting kind of numeric quantitative rigor on top of a bunch of opinions and guesses like, you know, the effort is probably a guess, the impact is probably a guess, the confidence is probably a guess, but at least with the confidence meter, you're trying to put some kind of story around like exactly what confidence means. But do you think that in general, it's fair to have that criticism of these like numeric frameworks that some people seem to think you can just pop a bunch of numbers in and just get your strategy out of the back? Or is there a rebuttal to the idea that these numbers are just basically codified guesses? So let's begin at the basis. I think you need prioritization at some level. Yep. Even if you don't call it prioritization, if you, you do a double diamond, you go out, you interview customers, you, you form problems, hypothesis, opportunities, whatever you want to call them, and only then you start thinking of ideas, you always have more than one idea. And other people will come from the side and give you other ideas that are not in your problem space, and you'll need to deal with them. So you're doing prioritization either way, yep. even if you don't call it that. Second, I think things like ICE, where you're putting numbers on impact, confidence, and ease, is a really mixed bag. There's a lot of value in it, and there's also very detrimental value, or like you can really derail yourself if you're using it the wrong way. Yeah. And let me explain. I see a lot of value in asking the three questions, which are, what's the impact? Which means, how much is this idea going to contribute to the goal? And it's really important to have a measurable goal, you know, an outcome. Second, and it's a guess. And initially, it's a guess. Later on, when you start testing it, it's a much more kind of educated guess. So it's not a bad thing to try to guess on a scale of 1 to 5 or 1 to 10 as long as you're using confidence. Then there's ease, which is the opposite of effort typically. And that's another guess. And it's a guess we have to make at some point. It's never accurate. None of these guesses are accurate, but it also improves as we start building versions of the product and we understand the complexity more. And then there's the confidence, which is the counterbalance. And that's the genius of uh, Sean Ellis for coming up with the ICE model, initially for marketing experiments, but also very useful, I think, for product. And he said, let's put a number that says, how sure are we actually that we're going to have this impact with this level of ease? Especially the impact is like, you can think that something is a nine out of 10, it turns out to be a minus three later. So that's a really <laughs> risky area. So I find tremendous value in asking these three questions because I see people go into a room and have a prioritization debate that rages on for hours, sometimes days, sometimes weeks. And then someone comes and says, okay, what's the impact of these ideas? What's the uh, is and what's the confidence? And that cuts the discussion in, like, really, massively. Everyone's forced to kind of detach from their emotions, from the love of the ideas or their opinions, and really answer these three questions. And at the end of the day, you have a much more kind of grounded discussion. Just at this level, it's worthwhile doing, I think. The last part that we should really be worried about is the multiplication of the three or to come up with the I-score. I think that's oversimplistic. Yeah. That number, the I-score, is at the best kind of a weak hint as to which ideas you want to test first. 
you should not definitely never build anything just based on i score and just say is i score let's build this thing in full absolutely <laughs> no that's a mistake i think sean is himself doesn't think that's the way it's supposed to be it's just a hint you need to use judgment as well yeah well i guess informed judgment is always better than just guest based judgment and yeah i think from my perspective as well i've always looked at the numeric frameworks of which there are many as a kind of a starting point and i think actually your point around almost treating it as a loop and revisiting the scores as you go and seeing which way the arrows are pointing like are you getting more or less confident or as a whole is this more or less of a good idea than it was when you started and i guess the trajectory of those changes can also really inform like how bad <laughs> how badly wrong it's going right and like how much you need to really check yourself so yeah i definitely think it's a part of it but i also agree with some of the people that and with you from just now like you it's not just a kind of put it in turn the handle and just go like that's if only things were that simple right yeah people love magic solution there's no <laughs> there's no magic solution there. just mix it with some okrs and we'll be fine right and i think the point you made is very important i don't think it's a one-time exercise you need to yeah. keep rescoring the idea every time you run an experiment every time you learn something new is the impact higher or lower is the is higher or lower now based on that we know what we know uh, I, I, and what's your level of confidence how much more confidence did you gain and that's important because some teams are really challenged with experimentation you know they don't have the infrastructure they don't have the time the the dog doesn't let them experiment but some teams even if they experiment they don't learn they build they measure they don't learn they start like thumbs up looks good let's go on if you do the ice exercise every time after you run an experiment it forces you to really ask these questions again not just does it look good but how good does it look is it really still the high impact idea we thought is it still worthwhile maybe we have better ideas let's park this one so that's why i suggest rescoring just as you said no i think it's a it's a good shout let's uh, see if we can get some people doing that but you can't talk about prioritization without talking about roadmaps i know that you're not a fan of roadmaps per se and it seems i've obviously these days quite a lot of people aren't but you've got an antidote to all of this stuff anyway which is the gist framework which you've written about you give talks about mentioned it earlier but for those living under a rock we're talking about goals ideas step projects and tasks so what's a simple walkthrough of those four areas and, and what they enable for decision making within the product development process so this is one of my insights from Google. Like when I came to Google, I was interested to understand what makes Google so successful, or at least made it. Uh, it's just OKRs, right? That's it's just OKRs. <laughs> exactly, OKRs and uh, <laughs> and hard work and engineering and uh, brilliant people. Yeah, it's not any of this. I mean, you work with Googlers; they're fantastic, but they're people. I mean, I work, with, I see great people in every company I work with, and it's. It's not just the high quality of people, but they are doing something different. And what it took me a while, but I realized that what they're doing different happens on four levels. One, they're much more goals driven than they are feature driven. It's, it's changing. It may have changed. It's maybe more so in the past than it is now. I don't know. You need to ask a car and Google, Googler. But there was this deep sense that we need to do something good for the users in a measurable way and something good for the business. And we should format these things as OKRs. And that's really what we're trying to launch over the course of the year. 
not a set of features necessarily, but a set of outcomes. Yeah. And that's what some people call the outcome-based roadmap, etc. I'm not going to paint Google as in all rosy colors. It, there's a lot of <laughs> output focus as well in, in some areas, but at least I got this sense in Gmail at the time I was working there. And the second thing is they're willing to consider any idea. It's not just the idea of the manager or the idea of... They're willing to, to look at many ideas. And early on in Google, there was this concept of uh, let a thousand flowers bloom. Yeah. Give more ideas a chance. Uh, which is a very scientific approach as well. I mean, in science, you don't know which ideas, are, which theories are right. You just need to test and see what works. So that gave me the basis of this second layer, which is about idea prioritization using ICE, etc. And then the third level was how evidence-driven things were. Like if you could present data, you could overturn the decision of a senior VP. Yeah. Theoretically, yeah. Um, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's not overstretch it, but... People were very reactive to data, or very kind of positively reacting to data. If if there was no data, opinions ruled, and usually the most senior person's opinion uh, made the decision. So, but if you did come up with the data, that really was leverage. And and the last thing was that in Google, I didn't see this heavy-handed kind of agile work where the rituals and the stand-ups <laughs> and the tickets. We didn't write any tickets. It was agile. It was really agile. We did do iterations, but the team was much more engaged. The team was part of this whole journey, including the goals, including ideation, including prioritization of ideas, etc. So that was the last layer, the task or the teamwork task layer. And then when I left Google, I was thinking, I have all these ideas, but I need to put it to use to allow people to have access to them. So eventually that morphed into Gist, which is a framework. I'm a bit ashamed. There's too many frameworks. <laughs> and it's kind of a modular framework as well. I mean, you need to look at your organization and say, what's most broken? Yeah. Because there is breakage everywhere. Is it about the goals? We're, we're not actually talking goals. We're talking about output constantly or things. So start with the goals layer and develop your metrics trees, develop your no-star metric pick a few and say, these are the goals for the year for the company, pick a few and say, these are the goals for the team, work with that. And that really will shield you from all this uh, barrage of ideas that keep coming your way, you know, from sales, from marketing, from, <laughs> from customers. You say, these are the goals. It's actually a trick I learned at Google. Like one time we had this brilliant idea for how to integrate Gmail with Google Photos. Photos was picking up you know, after the aftermath of the collapse of Google Plus, Google Photos was one of the spin-offs that really succeeded. And it's, it's, I still use it a lot, and I think it's a brilliant photo app. Yep. So we were thinking, Gmail, let's integrate with them. Let's do this cool integration. So we set up a meeting with uh, some PMs from the Photos team, and I presented the idea. And there was a junior PM there, a very smart guy, and said, listen, our North Star metric, it, it didn't use the word North Star metric, but our key metric is the number of photos created per, I, I don't remember exactly what it is. That's what we're optimizing for. Your idea doesn't align with that. So it's, it's not going to be prioritized, I'm telling you in, in advance. <laughs> and that was such a powerful statement. It just stopped me in my tracks. And I was like, I totally understand what these people are optimizing for. And I totally understand why they don't want to, to pick my idea. 
I think it's powerful. But many companies are missing this identity. Many teams are missing this identity. Everything is a good idea because <laughs> they didn't define their goals. That's interesting, actually, because I just finished reading Build by uh, Tony Fadell. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he talked about, because he worked, obviously, at Apple, then he went and started Nest, and then Nest got acquired by Google. And he was telling a story, a part of his book, around how he was trying to do much the same as it sounds like you were trying to do. Like, he was desperately trying to get some buy-in from other Google teams to get some stuff done. It didn't align with their goals, and he obviously had the additional problem of being like an outsider and not really part of the Google family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, obviously, I'm not going to say that any of the decisions were wrong because I wasn't there and I don't know the different ebbs and flows and things that could have been impacting their decisions. But it feels like at some point, there might be some time where that Google Photos goal is less important to Google than the thing that you were looking at. But then if we're fully empowering our teams and like enabling them to be fully self-sufficient and make those decisions based on their objectives, do you think that that maybe sometimes means that as a whole, the whole company misses out on opportunities that perhaps it would have been better to pursue? It's definitely possible. I mean, what you really want to achieve is, uh, and I'm borrowing here from Netflix, is to have the teams strategically aligned, the teams, the different parts of the company, strategically aligned, but tactically independent. So not every decision will need to go through 50 layers of approval sideways and upwards which was the case when I worked in Microsoft, by the way. <laughs> There's a famous blog post by a former uh, Microsoft engineer who said every change I had to make in the code, every feature had to be approved by 13 different people from different teams. So, yeah. so Netflix is trying to avoid this, and I think Google is trying to avoid it as well. And you avoid it by creating a mission and a North Star metric for every one of the business units or product areas, as they are called. And then you're trying to create a submission for it part of the sub-organization down to the team. And as much as possible, the teams need to pursue their mission, but being aware of the North Star metric one level above, right? Yeah. So sometimes the right thing to do is to put your ideas to the side and collaborate on someone else's ideas like the Android team did with the Gmail uh, tab, the inbox that I told you, because that is the best way to achieve your overall goals. If you get to this position, you're in a good place. So yeah, maybe there was some missed opportunity there, but trying to create a pan-Google <laughs> strategy that everyone needs to comply with would be, have been a total nightmare. And we all work for companies that try to do these things. Oh, yeah. But you talked in your blog recently, and we mentioned it earlier, about how big tech companies, they all have their own share of problems, but they've got, again, this kind of almost infinite money to experiment and take risks. And do things that many or probably most other companies can't really do. And that's obviously brilliant for them. Like they can, as you touched on earlier, they can spin up projects and let them fail and they can do this and they can do that. But do you think that some of the techniques that you champion, for example, the GIST framework, you know, getting people focused on outcomes, making sure that they're giving, like you say, getting a thousand flowers to bloom and giving all ideas a fair shout, working really small and making sure that everyone gets together and collaborates around the tasks and all of the stuff that we've touched on. Do you think those techniques have a legitimate home in these companies, maybe smaller, fairly dysfunctional early startups or mid-startups, yeah, the feature factories, the sales-led organizations where everything's a commitment and everything's being done based on deals. There's no real strategy in, in place or anything like that. Yeah, we hear about these companies all the time. Obviously, 
there's a spectrum of ways of working and all of that stuff. But do you think that, for example, the GIST framework works for a company that is heavily in the mire of the feature factory and the sales-led motif? Or do you feel that there's some interim stage that they need to get to before they can start to reap the benefits of an approach like that? First off, I think feature factory and, and sales-driven or sales-led is is a Venn diagram. These are two huge circles that, <laughs> that, that have an overlap, but they don't necessarily are exactly the same thing. So let me try to split them. The feature factory, which I think is the even more common problem, and it's really huge. And yep. it existed also in, in Google. And sometimes it's, at times it, in, in Gmail, I felt like I'm working in a feature factory because it changes uh, sometimes with a manager or with an attitude or with an imperative, a, a corporate mandate makes you a feature factory all of a sudden. <laughs> but it exists also at the level of a startup sometimes. Sometimes the founders just think that they're building a feature factory to just you know churn out the product that they have in mind. And that's a mistake as well. And it, definitely it happens in scale-ups when they start hiring executives from the outside and these people start treating the development team as a feature factory. Yeah. So there, the problem is that everyone's trying to optimize for maximum efficiency. They're trying to pick the best idea based on some heuristics, some market research and some opinions and shreds of data, and then build the most efficient, like fund it, build the most efficient project around it, put people, get them to execute perfect agile, <laughs> and launch the hell out of this thing. And that's a series of terrible optimizations. And the GIST framework is trying, which is, of course, based on many other frameworks and, you know, Kagan and Lean Startup and Design Thinking. It's, it's not really that original. <laughs> oh, don't say that. No one will buy it. Well, it's my own kind of version of it. Let's just call it that. So it starts, it tries to really push against all of these things. It tries to really, at the goals level, say, no outputs, outcomes, and use metrics. At the ideas level, not just this one idea that you all fall in love with. Here's an, We need to, to have at least three to five ideas per key result. At the experimentation, at the, the step level, I, I call it steps because experiments, I think, is too narrow. How do we test these things in the fastest, cheapest way? And then how do we analyze the results and invest only in the things that have traction? Yeah. And then at the task level, how do we get engineers and, de and designers not just to work in this, you know, repetitive sprints or whatever, pushing tickets to the done state? How do we get them to actually focus on experimentation and learning, just, not just on output? And I think this has a home in a variety of feature factories, and it's kind of the antidote in my mind. The sales-driven org, a bit harder. <laughs> That's usually very typical of large B2B, very slow, very dependent on a few customers, very reliant on the sales force. Yep. I still think there's a home there as well. Same model, much slower, but you don't need to run as fast as a B2C company. You just need to run faster than your competitors, in a sense. And... In these organizations, they tend to invest huge amounts into big projects that, based on what they think is very strong evidence, customer demands. Yeah. And often it's just one customer or a couple of customers, or maybe the most problematic customers that the CEO talked with, <laughs> setting the tone. 
Oh, yeah. And we're building project after project uh, based on this, what I consider anecdotal evidence. If it's just one customer said this, unless that customer is really like 50% of your income, you really need to think about the general case, not just build a, a set of one-offs that are very expensive to build and then maintain them just for that one customer that might end up not buying or not even using that thing. So you, we need evidence guided in these companies just as much as the other ones, but you need to tone it down a bit. Yeah, I think I might also argue that if you're a product company with 50% of your revenue in one customer, then you're probably setting yourself up for quite a lot of trouble yeah. going ahead. But you, know, you should probably diversify your revenue streams a little bit. But you recently talked about principles over process. You kind of touched on it earlier as well. And obviously, we all want to be flexible and adaptive and have growth mindsets and all that good stuff. But if you had to pick one principle that you live or die by, something you insist on, something that you think is the most important thing that people should stick to, even if they couldn't stick to anything else, what would that principle be? Uh, just the one. Well, you're a product guy. You've got you to prioritize. Yeah. I usually talk about four, but uh, I'll try to pick from the four. <laughs> <laughs> the four are uh, customer focus, which is lacking in so many companies. Oh, yeah. Evidence-guided decisions. Adaptive planning, so not just sticking to a roadmap, but actually trying to create uh, adaptability to new information and empowering teams, which obviously I stole from Malti. <laughs> all of these principles underlie, in my mind, all the, the good methodologies that we, uh, that's what they all have in common. They all are pushing for these things. Out of this, uh, I think, well, it's really hard. I think customer focus is really like, if you're really customer focused and are willing to really create value for your customers, not just for your business, that unlocks so many other things. So I I think if that's missing, that's what I would start with from. There you go. So far, so Jeff Bezos. Customer is everything. Should have worked for Amazon. Where can people find you after this if they want to find out more about confidence meters or the GIST framework or Maybe even chat a little bit about how to use their Google inbox. So on my website, itamaragilad.com, I-T-A-M-A-R-G-I-L-A-D.com. Well, you, you will send the link anyway. But, yeah, uh, I'll write it in, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, um, you can edit this in post if, you, <laughs> if this was redundant. <laughs> you can sign up to my newsletter and then you get all the articles plus access to the tools. So the confidence meter is a spreadsheet. As uh, uh, I have a bunch of other templates there for GIST plus a series of ebooks, including about OKRs and stuff. So this is kind of the gateway. If you sign up to my newsletter, that's, yeah, it's my commercial plug. I'm also <laughs> pretty active on LinkedIn and Twitter. I assume you will share those links as well. Absolutely. And I love to engage with the community. So please don't be shy. Reach out. Tell me what you like or don't like about my, my ideas. And let's exchange. And we'll all learn together. Well, I'll make sure to link that all into the show notes and uh, hopefully you'll get a few people heading in your direction to find out more. Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really grateful you could spare the time to talk about some interesting and important issues. Obviously we'll stay in touch, but yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com Check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. 
I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.